Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast, where we talk about DevOps for small and tiny teams. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall, and today's episode is going to be different than usual. Rather than me interviewing my guest, today my guest is going to be borrowing my brain. He'll be interviewing me, and I'll be providing a brief consultation. And if you would like to borrow my brain, go to jhall.io slash call. There you can sign up for a private consultation where I can answer questions about software delivery, DevOps, or heck, my favorite flavor of ice cream. But let's get on to today's episode. My guest Daniel has some questions about QA on his team. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for coming on. Um, maybe you want to do a brief introduction of yourself and, and the situation you're in. Sure. I'm Daniel. I'm currently the CTO, CTO at Optilize, a startup which is around 40-ish people at the moment and growing. And um, that's also the environment that I'm usually in. I've been building uh, product and engineering teams for startups, usually from a situation where, they, where it's founder-led to something um, a bit more professionalized with multiple teams. And um, one of the big pills I've swallowed is the good old agile pill of uh, making sure that everything shifts left. Um, but uh, one of the things that always is quite interesting for me to figure out is also what, what are the limitations and how to actually do this. So one uh, specific topic that I'd not like to talk about today is QA. Um, so how can we make uh, meaningful QA in a setup like this? How does it work in an agile world? What things do we maybe not even need at all? And which things, things might, say, make, uh, might make sense to have uh, in form of a QA team um, just uh, for some specific other reasons? That's great. Uh, yeah, that's a good topic. Uh, it's something I've uh, I've dealt with in the past uh, and struggled with in the past. Um, I, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you just a few more questions uh, before I start to provide an answer. Um, so you said right now there's 40 people. Does that is that just engineers or is that uh, no, the entire company? Yeah, that, that's totally. We have at the moment uh, around a thousand people. I would say like product folks or so developers, product managers, designers, QA and uh, growing to more or less double that number over the next year. So it's, it's definitely something that is growing um, and I'm more planning for the structure than in half a year or a year than growing too much of the structure right now. Okay, and how are they organized right now? Do you have uh, individual teams or is it a big group or how, how do you have that organized? So we come from a situation where we had a QA team, a front end team, a back end team, a um, design team and a product manager trying to coordinate these teams. And now um, one of the things we already did is move over to, for now, two teams. We want to grow this into three teams uh, where each team has one person from QA, has um, a bit of front end, a bit of back end, basically covering all the areas so that they can uh, get things done. Great. And are you using any uh, named um, process, maybe Scrum or something like that, or is it more of an ad hoc sort of situation? Um, this is a bit up to the team. So one of the teams is using a very light version of Scrum. The other team is more in a Kanban mode right now. Uh, and um, we don't do this too too strictly, to be honest, um, because uh, the main method how we organize all of this is with bi-weekly demos. So every two weeks, there's a demo where each team will show to the rest of the organization, including sales, including customer success, including operations, basically everyone who's interested, uh, what happened over the last two weeks. And this obviously leads to a bit of move towards Scrum because you have this natural two-week cadence. 
but um, even the team that works in Kanban, for them it's just some cadence in there. It doesn't change necessarily the way that the work is then organized um, while working on it. Okay. Uh, so uh, you have you said you have one QA per team right now. Does that mean you have a total of two QAs, or is it an ex is it exactly one per team? Yes, that's exactly the number right now. Okay, perfect. Okay, and your uh, so your basically it's a broad question. Um, what's the best way to organize QA? Is, is that fair, or do you have a specific maybe problem you're trying to face, or a specific uh, business outcome you're trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. I would say that there's two parts to this. One is that um, more the theoretical question of uh, what what could be a really great setup for this, but also it's a question of getting there because as mentioned, we come from a world where we had a front-end dev team, a back-end dev team, a QA team, a lot of handovers and um, just making sure that everyone is on board with changes and not doing all changes at the same time is quite important to me, um, while at the same time making sure that we don't lose too much of the, of the benefits that the old structure had as well. You may have said this, and I missed the detail. Um, the two teams you have now are they organized front end and back end, or are they organized on a product level? Yeah, so they are organized more or less on a product level. Though at the moment, this this translates actually quite closely because um, one of the product topics we're working on is mainly in the front end, and the other is solely in the back end. So we move basically one back end developer to the front end team so that they can uh, get their work done. But for the back end team, it's still only back end developers, at least for now. Um, just because the product area they're working on is only backend. Okay, very good. So um, let me relate one of my experiences, uh, which is one of the reasons you wanted to talk today, uh, something I did at, a, at an organization um, a few years ago, and then I'll offer some of my uh, maybe suggestions, how that might apply and how it might not. Um, so I was at a company uh, yeah, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, and when I joined, I think we had five uh, scrum teams and we had approximately one QA per team. Uh, I think one of the teams may have had two, but it, it, it was more or less one per team. And these were cross-functional teams. Um, but there was a really adversarial relationship between uh, our, our QA and our developers. Uh, and of course, sometimes it was personality-based. Some personalities just didn't get along well. Um, but the, the structure we had was that developers would write code and they would pass it to QA. They were on the same team, but there was still this sort of handoff that was happening. Um, how, how does that relate to your situation? Do you have the same or, or yeah, well, I should have asked this earlier, but what's your relationship yeah. right now between developers and QA? I, I would not say that it's adversarial. Everyone is, right, is getting, uh, getting along quite well. I think there's a bit of situation that um, devs might think that some QA tasks are basically below them, which is something that I've seen, seen happen a lot of uh, times where developers then do not really want to do it because it feels a bit like a waste of time. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, QA are also really um, uh, interested in what's happening on the product and on the um, development side. So overall, I would say the situation is a lot more benign than, than what you were describing there. Um, but there's still this handover definitely happening of a ticket moves to a certain column in, in, on the board and then the dev is no longer responsible and QA needs to take over. Uh, and uh, this sometimes leads to waiting times and sometimes to some rework. Okay. Um, I had another question. What was I going to ask? Um, how much automated testing do you have, if any? 
Um, this is something which is in the works. So uh, one of the QA actually is at the moment spending most of her time on automating tests and writing automated end-to-end -end tests. And um, we do have different levels of test coverage for different areas. We're not yet at a, spo a spot where we would feel comfortable trusting the tests. So we cannot just stop doing QA. Um, we still discover things also in the QA phase. And to be honest, also there is a big value around um, exploratory testing for us at the moment, where some things come up during, during QA tests, which just as a dev might not have thought about when writing the code. What is your uh, deployment process like? Are you using anything like continuous deployment or is it a manual release and deploy process? Um, it's mixed. So we still have some manual steps in there. We are uh, still using Jenkins for some of those, but the manual steps more or less boil down to pressing one or two buttons. So um, it's something that we most likely will switch over um, in a soonish time frame without much trouble. Um, but at the moment, it is actually still um, still a manual process. It's not automatically continuously deployed. Okay. How frequently do you deploy? At the moment, I would say once or twice per week, roughly. Depends a bit on what comes up because we do have so we do have two different systems. So the two teams work on different parts of the code base for um, the code that the. Um, mainly from the team is working on this actually already has continuous deployment in place. Um, but for the backend team, this doesn't, they doesn't yet have. So what I'm talking about here is mainly the backend part, which also is the one that actually requires most testing so far. Okay. So walk me through the, the life cycle of a typical user story, um, how it, and, and how it's touched by developers in QA before it's deployed. So I'm uh, somebody, I don't know if it's a product owner or, or whom, but they create a, a, a user story. A developer gets assigned to it. They work on it. Uh, when they think it's ready, they, they move it to the testers column or, or ha what, what happens at that stage? Mm -hmm. So that stage is moved to a test column ready for QA. At that point, it's also manually pushed to a testing environment. And then the, on this testing environment, um, the QA team takes over, does some manual checking on that, uh, says uh, at some point says, yep, this is ready. And the ticket gets moved to the next column. And uh, that's then ready for release, uh, which again uh, requires a manual testing step um, before actually pressing the button because sometimes multiple things are bundled. Um, but to be honest, this step also usually doesn't catch anything anymore. So most of the actual testing happens on the um, on the feature branch. And if a if a QA finds something wrong that needs additional attention, uh, how does that story change? So at that point, they reach out usually via Slack to, to the developer, and the developer finds some time soonish. So if they're in the middle of something, it might take a couple hours, but it's usually in, in I would say, in a day or so um, to take care of it, um, take the ticket back, fix it, and then the process starts again from the same spot. Okay. You did mention that one of your QAs is working on writing automated tests. Do the developers write any automated tests, maybe unit-level tests or something like that? Some, I would say that at the moment, this is not that much of a focus yet. We yeah. are at the moment also trying to get a bit more skills around TDD, both by hiring as well as um, just expanding the knowledge and the team, but it's not there yet, I would say. So we, we always say that we do want to write more tests. Everyone is aware of that. It's just not happening as much as, uh, as we should to actually um, cover, uh, get, get a decent amount of coverage. Okay.
Um, what what is your branching strategy? Are you using Git Flow or trunk based development or something, or how are you doing uh, that in Git? It's more or less Git Flow. It's uh, slightly modified. So we have um, we do have release branches, for example, also, but. Um, I would say, for for all intents and purposes, it's good flow. Okay. All right. So let let me get back to relating uh, what I did, uh, and then talk about how some of that applies to your situation, or how I think it might apply to your situation. Uh, so yeah, I was uh, I, I had joined a company uh, with approximately five Scrum teams, one QA per team, and it uh, on some of the teams in particular, it was a fairly adversarial relationship. Um, at least on paper, it looked very much like what you described. The developer would write some code, they would pass it to the, the QA, the QA would either pa pass or fail that code. Um, of course, it was the fails that turned into the adversarial relationship, uh, where, where the QA said, this is not right, and the dev said, no, I think it is, or so something like that could, could happen sometimes. Um, aside from the the emotional turmoil that, that was happening, um, it just it wasn't very efficient on paper either. Uh, a typical scenario would be that uh, for the beginning of the sprint, developers were busy and the, and the QAs were kind of bored. <laughs> and then the last half of the sprint was the reverse. The QAs were frantically trying to test everything the developers did the first week, and the developers were, were waiting for something to do. Of course, they would sometimes have some rework to do depending on the QA results. Uh, so th this was one of the key things we were trying to, to, uh, to, to achieve or to, to, to overcome. Uh, when I was there, um, what we ended up doing, uh, th th this was made more complicated and or easier, depending on your viewpoint, by the fact that all except one of our QAs were actually working for a, an outsourced company and they were in a different country. Um, so they were neither direct employees, nor were they in the same room with us. So that, that may have, that almost certainly contributed to this adversarial relationship. Uh, when you, when you pass your work off to somebody in another country, um, they're not sitting there with you. You don't have coffee with them every day. You know, it, it's it's a different scenario than I'm assuming you're dealing with. Um, but what we ended up doing was we decided to well, I decided to uh, to basically end the contract with our offshore QA team, and we did hire a, a temporary, a six month contract freelance uh, test automation engineer to come in and help us build uh, the the foundation of a test automation system and train our one in-house QA engineer on how to use that. He'd only been doing uh, manual QA up to that point, so we wanted to teach him how to do automated QA. So they came, he, she came in and she helped set up, um, I, don't, I don't remember the name of the tools right now, uh, but some some uh, SaaS-based uh, automation tools for, for front-end. Uh, this was all web-based front-end testing. We did have some unit tests uh, written in Java for the backend code, so we kept doing that. That didn't really change. It was really the front-end testing that was the the, uh, the area of concern here. Um, and so over the course of her six-month contract, she set this up. She helped cross-train our in-house developer. And then at the, about four months in, maybe four and a half months in, was the end of the contract with our offshore QAs. And, uh, of course, they, they weren't happy to leave. Nobody's ever happy to, 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 to lose a, they didn't lose their jobs, but they lost the contract. They still had jobs at the agency they were at. Um, the surprising thing that happened, at least to me, we, we, we were, we were freaking out. We were, 
we had expressed all the same concerns you have about we're not sure that our you know we were certain that our automated testing wasn't ready yet for for prime time that you know QA is not going to be catching things anymore. We're probably going to have more bugs into production. So we, I set up a, a week, actually for the first couple of days, I think it was a daily meeting. And then we went to weekly with the two QAs, our, our, our freelance contractor and our in-house QA and me and some of the other stakeholders on a, on a daily basis and a weekly basis to, to handle all of the problems that we expected to come. We didn't have any problems. Uh, the, the truth is we, we canceled the meeting after about three weeks because we would just get together, stare at each other for five minutes, and we had nothing to talk about because nothing actually broke, uh, at least that we noticed. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, uh, there weren't any like hidden dangerous bugs that, that got through either. Months later, things were still going smoothly. So the, the, one, the one key big lesson I can take out of that is that our fear of removing manual QA as a gatekeeping step was much bigger than the reality deserved. I don't know if your situation's different, but it, I suspect there's a, mm. I, I suspect that there's some similarities there. So after having told that story, um, some of the things that I would recommend for your team to do, um, stop using GitFlow. <laughs> if you can, if you can go to get, uh, to, to trunk based development, uh, that will make uh, most of everything else simpler. It makes the flow more streamlined. I really like what you said, though, that you're doing, you're pushing your code to a test environment so that it's tested before it is merged. That's perfect. That That's important. Uh, it's important that your QA, uh, whether it's manual or automated, whichever, can test your code before it's merged. In other words, you don't you don't want to go from uh, say development to staging, and then everything's in this staging pool together, and then you test it, and if it was broken, maybe you revert it or something like that. I've seen some teams do that. In fact, the team I just described was doing that at one point when I first started. Um, so I think it's essential that you're doing the, the, what you're doing is right, that you're testing before you merge it. Uh, and, unless I misunderstood what, how you described that, that sounds really good to me. So, so to get back to the original question, you wanted to talk about the theory of QA and, and how it should work in a situation like this. This is my opinion, um, my professional opinion. I know it's not the only opinion. There are especially uh, some some uh, people whose careers are, are dedicated to QA only uh, will disagree with me on this. But my opinion um, is that QA should take a support role. They should... Uh, I'll explain that more in a moment, but they should not be um, gatekeepers for for software delivery. In the same way, I, I, I'm I'm the, I call myself the tiny DevOps guy, uh, so I I, I I see things through a DevOps lens. So I look at QA much the same way I look at operations. That operations operations should not be a gatekeeper for the developers. Neither should QA. Neither should security. Neither should any of those other things. Um, so in the same way that I see operations taking providing support, a support role to developers, I like to see QA doing the same. And the way that looks uh, in more practical terms or more concrete terms is I think it's great to have dedicated QA people. They could be their own team. They could be embedded on existing teams. That's less important to me. But they should be able to support the developers. So in other words... Each user story the developer works on is their responsibility. They are responsible for, for writing code and making sure that code works correctly. 
when they need help because they aren't familiar with some testing tools or te techniques or technologies, that's when a QA a person, a QA specialist can help them. The QA specialists or the QA team can also be responsible for maintaining the, the testing platforms. Uh, so th th this is much the same way I look at supposing I suppose I'm a developer and I'm building a deployment script for Kubernetes, but I'm not a Kubernetes guru. Who am I going to ask help from? I'm going to ask the operations people who installed and maintain Kubernetes and they can provide guidance for me, but they're not going to do it for me. They may help. They may write some of the lines of, of the, the configuration, the Kubernetes manifest, but they're not going to do it for me. They're going to help me do it. So I like to use the, I like that same sort of relationship between dev and QA that I like that I see between dev and operations in a healthy DevOps organization. That's the theory. Does that does that help? Is that clear? Yeah, I, I think two I questions there. Yeah, I, I do have a do have a couple of questions to follow up on this. One uh, maybe around the okay. um, just the focus. So I mentioned exploratory testing. Is this something mm -hmm. that you then did at all in this context? Is this something which you realized is not needed? Is this something which the developers did? Um, how how did exploratory testing go in this context? Uh, we never formalized that at this team. I do think exploratory testing is is very important. Um, uh, I think that it, yeah. So, so the way the way I see this working um, is that exploratory testing is removed completely from the software delivery uh, lifecycle. So, your your user stories go through the the process of being written, tested, deployed, and exploratory testing happens outside of that. Uh, exploratory testing could happen in a production like environment uh, after something's been merged. It could even be in production. It could happen uh, on an ad hoc basis during the development. Um, I think I think the answer to that depends on the team more than the workflow. Uh, what what works for you? What what makes sense? What are you trying to achieve with your exploratory testing? Are you trying to prove uh, uh, that a new workflow in your in your software is valuable to end users, for example, or that there aren't any hidden uh, use cases or, or, or hidden uh, booby traps or, you know, what are you trying to, to test for? Um, but the, the, the goal in, in my view of exploratory testing, maybe there are some exceptions, but generally it should not be as a gatekeeper for, you can't re release this until we've done the testing. Uh, so, so in that sense, it's separate from the software delivery lifecycle. There, there could be exceptions. Maybe you're building a, a, a brand new feature that you can't beta test or something that it, that it has to be right the first time. Maybe then you're going to do some exploratory testing, um, in a, some sort of staging or test environment before it gets released, but that should be rare. Um, and it's not usually the kinds of software that I think the teams that you and I work on are doing startups need to move fast, right? They're, they're. The, the, the fastest way to test an idea is to have customers looking at it. So whenever possible, you want to get, get your your changes in front of customers as quickly as possible. Um, simultaneously, your QA can be doing this exploratory testing to see, hopefully find things before users do or find areas for improvement. Maybe they're not finding bugs. Maybe they're just finding areas for improvement. Um, so I, I hope I hope that answers the question. If it doesn't, let me know and, and I can clarify some more. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's really helpful. I mean, um, I also am a big fan of uh, just uh, using feature toggles and basically having a production user, which is not one of the customers who can just test, mm -hmm. because then um, the deployment is completely separated out from the release and from the testing process. 
Um, my, my next question is actually more around um, the cultural uh, aspect of this. And um, this is something where I think our situation might have been slightly different because um, but if I understood correctly, then in your case, the developers actually did not want to work with QA. <laughs> there was, as you mentioned, this kind of adversarial relationship. Uh, while in my situation, I'm uh, a bit in the different situation that they really liked working with QA. They like to not have part of the responsibility so that they can focus on other things. Um, and the aggravating factor here is that we are already doing a lot of changes. So, for example, I mentioned that we uh, come from a situation where we had one big team split up as front-end team, back-end team, QA team, and so on. And we are now moving or have moved into a structure where we have cross-functional teams. So, for me, one of the biggest challenges I'm facing around this is also staggering the changes. And um, therefore here, I'd be interested in, in how you would approach it, because if I just on day now say, hey, let's also take away, uh, take away QA for the new teams, um, then this would be one more thing that uh, everyone would need to cope with at, uh, at the same time. That's a great question. Um, and of course, you're going to have whatever I tell you will probably be irrelevant because you have to apply it to your, your situation, or your culture. Um, but it's great that you're being mindful of that. Um, so I guess my answer would be, what's the biggest pain point right now and address that. And I don't know if that's QA related or if it's something else, because uh, I don't know your whole situation, but I, I would focus on the biggest problem, uh, whatever the biggest problem is at the moment, solve that, let everybody uh, breathe a sigh of relief, uh, celebrate a little bit that that problem is solved, hopefully, and then move on to the next one. Don't try to solve everything at once. Um, I told you not to use GitFlow. That should be a goal. Maybe that's not your first step. Uh, maybe your first step is completely unrelated to that. Uh, but um, yeah, as you were telling me, as I was taking notes through the through your first description, um, you know, there were several things I could think of that I would probably change, but I wouldn't do them all at once. Um, so yeah, I don't know your business context. I don't know what your biggest pain point is. If QA is your biggest pain point, maybe you address that now. Um, if you've made bigger changes more recently, maybe you need to wait two or three months just to let everybody settle down first before you do that. Um, if you can get the team on board with a change before you do it, that's even better. Uh, I, I had a difficult time doing that. Uh, I mean, the team I was working with trusted me and they trusted that this would be a, a good change, but they were skeptical all the time. You know, they, it's it's scary to take away human testers, uh, no, no matter how you do it. Um, it. It's scary because it's what whether it was working or not, uh, it's what we're comfortable with, right? And so making that change uh, to something, you know, handing the controls over to a computer, so to speak, uh, seems scary. Uh, so yeah, be sensitive. You're, you're already doing it. Be sensitive to what the team is, is ready for uh, emotionally, uh, in a maturity sense. Um, yeah, fo focus on the biggest problem first. And I don't know if this is that, is that problem or not. Yeah, thanks. And then actually the last question from my side around this is um, around skills. So um, let's say that we now have the focus, we know this is what we want to do for, for QA. All, everyone is on board, so everyone says, yes, let's move in this direction. Then um, one thing that always uh, can also stand in the way is, uh, do we have, have the skilled, right skill set with everyone? So um, who, will, uh, who will cover which parts? Um, and for, for this, uh, what I would be most interested in, what kind of skill sets did you see that the developers used more or, the, or maybe think they say, it's good that they had this skill set already because that made the transition uh, a lot less painful. So in my situation, uh, I, I, should, I should have mentioned this a moment ago. Uh, in my situation, one of the uh, 
one of the fears or the, the skepticisms from my developers was, w w are we capable of doing testing as well as the, as the QA? Um, and uh, aside from that, also, do we want to? Uh, you know, I, I want to write code today. I don't necessarily want to test that code. Um, and even after the fact, I had uh, some of the developers express a little bit of um, frustration that it was annoying that they had to spend more time writing tests uh, when they really wanted to be writing code. But at the same time, they admitted that it was a much better situation than before. So given the option between waiting for QA and writing their own test, they chose to, they, they preferred writing their own test. Uh, so how does that relate to this question of skills? Um, I don't know what tools you are or will be using to write tests. In, in my view, you should write most of your tests as close to the code as possible, unit style tests. Uh, there's still definitely a place for end-to-end -end tests, you know, the kinds that use Selenium and stuff like that. Um, hopefully your developers are comfortable learning those tools. I don't know if you'll be using Cucumber or Gherkin or, or what you'll be using, but whatever tools you choose to use, uh, there's gonna be a, a learning curve, of course, there. Um, if your testers already are familiar with that, then they can help with that, that training, hopefully. Um, if literally nobody in the in the company knows those new tools, then for one thing, question whether to use those tools or choose something else. Uh, but if you if you need to, to truly use a tool that nobody knows, then yeah, maybe you need to hire somebody. Maybe you're not making a permanent hire. Maybe you bring in a trainer or, or a freelancer for six to 12 months who can help with that sort of thing. Uh, those are all business questions you'll have to answer. Uh, but there's different ways you can approach that. You don't necessarily have to hire, just using a random example, you don't have to hire a, a Gherkin expert to come in and teach you all how to do that uh, on a permanent basis. It could be a three-month or six-month contract. It could be some, some training, uh, whatever. There's different ways to fill that skill gap. Um, generally speaking, I put a lot of confidence in my developers. I think that people who choose that profession do it because they like solving problems. And learning a new skill set is just, after all, another problem to solve. It's more a question then of, do they want to solve that problem? Do they want to learn those skills rather than can they? And so that's something you'll need to ask your guys or gals. Um, are they interested in, in, in uh, addressing these issues? Um, yeah, does that help at all? Uh, or did I skip part of your question? I, th I think that's great. I think um, what I take from this is also um, the main skills that you mentioned now are around uh, test automation using the related tools and um, also around moving tests closer to the code. So um, specifically, um, things around TDD would actually cover cover many of these uh, these topics quite well. And um, yeah, um, that's if any other skills come to mind that are not related to automated testing, then that would be interesting. Um, but based on what you said before, it sounds like the focus um, that actually was successful was the focus on automated testing. Yeah, T TDD is great, um, although it is a skill to learn. Uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate of TDD. But I also know that, I don't know if your ex developers are experienced with it, it's not something you just pick up overnight. I mean, you can learn to write a unit test quickly, but learning to write unit tests in that way that are scalable and don't get brittle and crumbly very quickly is a new skill set to learn. Uh, there are some uh, trainings. If you if, if you don't have this that skill in your team, you, you need to develop it. Um, Actually, one of the episodes of my podcast, an older one, uh, I interviewed somebody who does a TDD training. I can provide a link to that if you're interested or other listeners are interested. Um, one other thing I would mention, uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading the book uh, called Accelerate. I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Um, it's, uh, But one of the things they mentioned in that book is uh, in, the, in their uh, 
and they're studying and, and they're what do they call it and their, and their investigation they, they did basically they did surveys of hundreds of companies doing devops related uh principles uh, and practices and the data they have shows that uh the way they phrased it i think was if your tests are not being primarily written by your developers you see practically no benefit in terms of uh the output from your it organization so uh that's not to say that you shouldn't have QA people writing tests, uh, but they should not be writing the majority of tests. Basically, if there's a wall between your coders and your testers, uh, in terms of who's writing the code and who's writing the tests for that code, that wall uh, practically destroys the benefit of the tests in the first place. So uh, that's another, in my view, another reason to uh, use QA people as a resource for developers. Not They, they shouldn't be the ones doing the tests. They should be helping the people who do the test, if that, if that makes sense. One other thing I would uh, encourage you to do is to work on getting continuous deployment in place uh, quickly. Uh, you don't need to have automated tests first. I mean, you already have that, that, that in place. They, you can do the manual testing in your review environment and then, and then merge. Keep doing that. That's great. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people they can do that. They can do CD with manual testing. It's possible. Maybe it's not perfect, but it's possible. And, and start there. But I, the reason I would encourage you to get CD going as quickly as possible is because I think it helps boost the morale of, of most teams when they see their code being deployed more frequently. It, it's a, it gives you a little adrenaline boost. It's like achievement unlocked every time you deploy, and it, and it feels good. Uh, it also reduces, of course, the, the feedback loop. Um, assuming this is going in front of customers, and it should be, um, then, then you have customers exposed to the new features more quickly. And maybe one of the most important reasons that I think is often overlooked that I really like CD is it adds a sense of responsibility to the developer who hits that, hits that merge button. When I when I hit as a developer, when I hit merge, but I know it's going to be two two days or three days or a week or a month before my code goes in front of customers, I'm a little bit less careful than if I know that when I hit this in five minutes, customers are going to see my code. <laughs> so it, it adds it adds a little bit of responsibility and ownership. Uh, that I think is essential if you're trying to re either reduce or eliminate this manual QA stage and you want to instill that, that ownership in the developer, convincing them that hitting merge means customers see your code is one of the first steps towards uh, the developer feeling the ownership for the quality of the code they're merging. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh and also, personally, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of introducing these kind of things early. Um, again, it's always a question of um, pacing it out correctly uh, because not everyone in the team is always uh, comfortable with every every methodology, and then it's better to to focus on one thing after a time. Um, but yeah, I've I've seen uh, myself uh, time after time the benefits of um, trunk-based development of basically my, my, my favorite personally for my perf, uh, my preferred working style is working in a small ensemble of three or four people and um, just commit by commit pushing directly to production um, that's that's, amazing. that's a feeling that if you haven't lived that if you haven't had the chance to try working like that then yeah I, I always encourage to at least give it a try find a company that is willing to take you on for a day or two to see how it works 
And then after you've worked in this style for a bit, uh, you will not be happy <laughs> anymore in a different style. So maybe I need to take back my recommendation for this reason <laughs> and say don't don't to do it because it might um, might create some expectations for the company you're currently working in, which might not be able to fulfill it just yet. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it sounds like you have. Uh... You've already seen the light, uh, so it's easy. You, you, you don't have to be convinced. You just have to convince the others to do it, it sounds like. Great. Is there anything we haven't covered? Um, any other questions I can, I can help with? I think, yeah. I think we covered the two main questions. You talked both about the theoretical aspect of uh, how could QA work and um, the experience that um, it works without exploratory testing in, in that example um, by focusing on um, make, uh, making sure the devs know what to work on, what to look at, feel responsible for it, and know how to write automated tests. And then more the cultural aspect of pacing things out a bit. So um, making sure they are, uh, that if you introduce a new tool, a new framework, people are aware of it, know about it, feel a bit more comfortable before everyone has to use it, and maybe not do five changes in one day, but instead spread it out over, over half a year or a year, um, depending on how many changes there are. Yeah, exactly. And, and try to get as much buy-in as you can. Uh, if you can convince them it was their idea to change something, of course, you know, that's the whole art of diplomacy, right? Convincing somebody else that your idea was theirs then uh, it's even easier. But uh, yeah, it sounds like you have an exciting challenge ahead of you. Uh, I hope that it goes well. I hope your teams are enthusiastic. And uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. It was a pleasure right. talking with you. If, we, if people are interested in your company, uh, how can we uh, follow up? Yeah, so, so it's Optilize, and because it's hard to spell, um, I guess we will put a link in the description. Um, and um, we are actually also hiring. I know this is like the default, uh, default line of any CTO always in all kinds of podcasts. Um, but um, if you're interested in joining on that journey, that's nice. Um, and yeah, we, we are looking forward for anyone interested. And what's your tech stack for, for listeners who might be interested? So we work purely in um, JavaScript slash TypeScript. So at the moment, uh, TypeScript, React, Redux front-end, and a um, JavaScript slash, in the future, TypeScript back-end uh, run on AWS. And um, from, from a focus perspective, it's a lot of big data transformations. At this point, the call was dropped. And since we were nearly done, we didn't re-record the end. Uh, but thank you for listening. Uh, once again, if you would be interested in borrowing my brain as well, go to jhall.io slash call, and I hope to see you next time on Tiny DevOps. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day. <laughs>